You're listening to Radio Luke's Lucid. I'm your host, Steve Matthews. Thanks for joining me for episode 74. The title of this episode is Happy New Year 2022. Pope Francis still up to his old immigration tricks. Well, Happy New Year 2022. It's great to be here for another year. And this is actually my 14th year as a blogger, podcaster, and YouTuber. Thank you for your support, uh, for all of you, for all your support over the past year in 2021. It was my honor to serve you with Radio Luke's Lucid Podcast during the year. And Lord willing, 2022 will bring many more opportunities for doing the same. Now, one thing that that kind of uh, interested me about all this when I was getting this podcast together here is is the the grammar uh, surrounding Happy New Year. So is it Happy New Year's or is it Happy New Year? And every year, every new year, I kind of go through this because I only, of course, talk about it once a year. And then by the time the next year rolls around, I'm thinking, okay, I, I kind of sort of think I remember what what the correct idea is. But, uh, you know, I've kind of forgotten and I feel a little bit shaky. And I, I don't want to start off my podcast and title my podcast using bad grammar. That's that's kind of a bad way to get started on things. So I, I found this article in, in Newsweek and the the way this works is there there are actually a couple of different constructions here in certain circumstances happy new years is correct and in other circumstances happy new year is correct and it, it has to do with as i say it just it has to do with the, the context in which you use it and the, this particular article in newsweek let's see if i can find here what it talks about So the, in the case of the apostrophe S uh, in New Year's, it's required when discussing things that belong to New Year's Eve or January 1st, such as party plans or resolutions made. This is because apostrophes are the way the English language indicates either possession or something belongs to another. As a result, the following three examples are all correct applications of the apostrophe in New Year's. New Year's Eve, December 31st is the eve of 2022. New Year's Day, January 1st is the first day of 2022. New Year's Resolution, a stated goal or aim for the new year. There is in each example a clear relationship between the new year and the noun, the eve, the day itself, and the resolution. This is because they're all specifically related to the new year, meaning New Year's becomes the modifier of each noun. It's consequently correct to say we're throwing a New Year's party and they've made a list of New Year's resolutions. Now, from on the other hand, from midnight on December 31st and for a few succeeding days, people say Happy New Year. New Year is also correctly used with no possessive apostrophe S when discussing the year as a whole. In contrast, New Year's refers to one specific night, day, and one resolution. But New Year usually comes up when people are talking generally about the year, often before it has begun or while it is still early in the year. This means the following examples are correct are the correct use of New Year. December is a very busy period for me, so when we should get so we should get dinner early in the new year. Now it is the new year, I have much more free time to socialize. Happy New Year to you all. Note in the above examples, New Year is capitalized when the holiday or January 1st is being discussed, but not when the New Year as a time frame is being referenced. So that's all very interesting. So that's that's kind of grammar nerdy kind of stuff there. And as a result, I titled my podcast Happy New Year 2022 because I'm referring to the, the year as a whole. 
I believe that's the correct application. It's kind of funny that I'm even thinking or discussing about this because when I was was a kid, when I was going through school, I, I hated English class and I hated English grammar. And so what do I do? I, I end up growing up and I become a podcaster and, and a blogger. <laughs> Go figure, right? That, that just makes perfect sense, right? You know, I, I spent all of my time in, in English class basically goofing off. Uh, now, I'm not recommending that. I, I shouldn't have done that. I'm not saying that's a good thing, but that's what I did. And it, it wasn't until I got into college and I actually started taking a foreign language, I took German, that I really started to to learn English grammar and and to have some appreciation for it. I, my my use of language grew quite a bit when I was in college for, for having done that. And I really didn't even want to take German. I mean, I ended up having to do it to fulfill an elective requirement. And I kind of surprised myself and found out I liked it. So it's kind of interesting, but most of the grammar that I know, I actually know through having studied foreign languages. Uh, one other thing, kind of a short thing I wanted to talk about. Well, I had a couple other things I want to talk about just by way of introduction here in the new year. Now, one of them is UC football. Now, my my Bearcats, they made it all the way to the college football playoffs. That's the final four playing for the championship, the championship trophy for the college football for the year. And they ran into a buzzsaw called Alabama. And it was it was kind of a rough game. It was on it was on, uh, well, New Year's Eve. And. What happened, it was kind of what I was afraid of. I mean, they just, I think they really just got overmatched during the game by Alabama. Not that that's any real shame. I, I think Alabama, I don't know. They, uh, they're really a machine. I think they're the number one program right now in college football and have been for several years. Uh, their coach, Nick Saban, a lot of people think he's the greatest football, college football coach ever. And it's kind of hard to argue with that. I believe he's already has seven national titles. Uh, I think sometimes maybe they ought to bump Alabama up to the NFL and, and the, not not uh not force the uh the college teams to play them but you know congratulations alabama they played a great game they deserve to win and you know i i hope that they go on to win the win the title uh you know they uh definitely are i i think the best team that that i've seen out there this year in in college football but also congratulations to the bearcats you know they had a great season i was really proud of them i really enjoyed watching that team this year, maybe more than I've enjoyed watching anything in, in sports in a long time. And I guess maybe some of that has to do with just the fact that, you know, we live in this time when there's so much that is so negative. I mean, not only is there no good news, it, the news that's out there is almost universally bad. I mean, it's, there's all this, this stuff going on politically with, uh, with COVID, with you know, a lot of things that, that I think are, uh, very frustrating to me as a, as a Christian, as an American, as someone who loves liberty and uh, and uh, uh, capitalism, free markets, these kinds of things. I mean, it seems like the bad guys are uh, winning uh, time after time after time, and there's there's not a whole lot of good that's going on right now at this particular time. And it was really nice to have something to get a little bit excited about this fall and and enjoy that really kind of took my mind off of some of that stuff. You know, I read and I talk about that probably even more than most people just because of the the kind of work that I do here, either with the podcast or with the blog. And it's nice to just get my mind off of some of that for a while. So congratulations to the Bearcats. They had a, a wonderful season and I look forward to watching them again next year. One last thing, and this is going to be the last time I mention this. I've talked here some about Christmas lights and the, uh, the neighbors we had, I, I, found out that they had placed, I think, second last year 
in the the top Christmas lights in, in Cincinnati, one of the local stations. And sure enough, they they placed in that group again. Uh, I don't think they were second this year, but they did place in that group. And it was uh, one of the local TV stations, WLW Channel 5, featured them on its webpage. And I'll, I'll include a link to that page in the, in the description. And interestingly enough, when I... They actually have, I, I thought originally it was just a still photograph, but they actually have a video of, of the display. So you can, if you, if you click on the link and you scroll down, you're, you see their display. They're number 20 and there's a little video of the, of the, of the house. So it's, it's kind of interesting in that regard. So anyway, I guess congratulations to, to them as well. They, uh, they placed once again on the, the top lights in, in greater Cincinnati. A very respectable 20, by the way. I mean, when you think of all the people who have Christmas lights out, I guess it's not bad coming in in the, in the top 20. So today I wanted to, now I wanted to turn to the, the main topic of today's program. And, and of course that has to do with, with Pope Francis still being up to his old immigration tricks. And, the uh, the trick in this particular case is a very common play that that the Roman Catholic Church runs, especially around Christmas. And that play is it, it's basically comparing the what's sometimes called the flight to Egypt. That is when when Joseph took Mary and Jesus and fled to Egypt when he was warned by the angel uh, to leave Judea, and because of apparently because of because of Herod and because of the. Uh, the murders that that Herod was committing, he was warned in a dream to flee to Egypt to to get out of the the danger. And what the Roman Catholic Church says is that the the flight of of the family to to Egypt is really sort of the archetype, sort of the pattern, the the representative of all migrants everywhere. So when you you see migrants, you know millions of migrants pouring across America's southern border. Well, really, what we should do is we should see you know Joseph, Mary, and Jesus uh, in their faces. You know what they're doing is exactly the same thing as as what the Joseph and his family did when warned by the angel Gabriel. And I guess if if you reject them in the Roman Catholic Church's way of thinking, what you're really doing is is you're opposing Christ Himself. That's essentially what their argument is, and you're an all-around very bad person, and you need to repent of your sins. It's an attempt by Rome to seize the moral high ground and make you feel guilty if, for instance, if you don't think having your country flooded by millions and millions of foreigners that then go on the welfare dole, if you don't think that's an awesome idea, well, you're an all-around very bad person in the eyes of the Pope. So let's take a look at this particular article. You can find there, – there are many such statements of this out there, but this is a recent one. This was done in the middle of last week. I believe it was last Wednesday. It was a, a sermon that, that Pope Francis gave. So we'll kind of – we'll break that down and, and look, take a little closer look at some of the ideas that he put forward. So this is a headline from Breitbart News. And, and by the way, Breitbart I found is a really good source on – the uh, the doings of the Pope. They've got a fellow who's in the Rome Bureau. It's called his name is Thomas D. Williams, and apparently he is a a former Roman Catholic priest himself. I guess he ran into some personal trouble. I found out. I looked up his biography, but he's a good writer, and he you know I don't know what his you know where he is in terms of his his faith. I don't know. I assume he's probably still a Roman Catholic. But he does a very good job reporting on some of the things that are done in Rome, particularly as they relate to issues of, of immigration. 
Yeah, I found a lot of articles in Breitbart that are, are quite good in, in reporting some of the comments that Pope Francis makes. So here's a headline from Breitbart. The article is by Thomas D. Williams. And uh, the article, again, it's titled, Pope Francis, St. Joseph was a persecuted and courageous migrant. Okay. So, you know, again, so if, if St. Joseph was a persecuted and courageous migrant, and these people in, uh, that are coming across America's southern border in the millions, and it quite literally is the millions right now, it, these people are all also persecuted and courageous migrants, just like Joseph was. And if we reject them, well, you know, we're, we are uh, rejecting them in the same way as if we would have rejected uh, uh, Joseph. And again, you know, that's, that's an attempt to basically guilt people in to allowing their countries to be overrun by, by welfare migrants. So let's read a little bit of this article and we can talk about it. So the uh, dateline is Rome. Pope Francis presented St. Joseph as the foster father of Jesus as a persecuted and courageous migrant in a provocative address in the Vatican Wednesday. The evangelist Matthew described St. Joseph as, quote, a persecuted and courageous migrant the Pope said during his weekly general audience in the Vatican. Another quote from the Pope, This particular event in the life of Jesus, which also involves Joseph and Mary, is traditionally known as the flight to Egypt. The Pope continues, The family of Nazareth Nazareth suffered such humiliation and experienced firsthand the precariousness, fear, and pain of having to leave their homeland. He continued, Today, so many of our brothers and sisters are still forced to experience the same injustice and suffering. Today, I think we need a prayer for all migrants, migrants and all the persecuted, and all those who are victims of adverse circumstances, be they political, historical, or personal circumstances, the Pope said. Let us think of the many people who are victims of wars who want to flee from their homeland but cannot, he said. Let us think of, think of the migrants who set out on that road to be free, so many of whom end up on the street or in the sea. Let us think of Jesus in the arms of Joseph and Mary, fleeing, and let us see in him each one of the migrants today, he continued. Migration today is a reality to which we cannot close our eyes. It is a social scandal of humanity, end quote. Now, that last bit there is is really, I think, the key. And and listen, I want to repeat that here again. This is quoting Pope Francis. Let us think of Jesus in the arms of Joseph and Mary, fleeing, and let us see in him each one of the migrants today. So, so when we look at migrants, what we're really supposed to do is we're supposed to see Jesus uh, and his family fleeing Judea to go to Egypt. And again, if we if we reject migrants today, it's the same thing the Pope is saying this. Now, this isn't true, and I'm going to explain why this is the case. But the Pope wants you to say that if we reject this sort of mass welfare migration that's going on, that it's it's really the same tantamount to rejecting Christ himself. And again, this is an attempt to intimidate and guilt people into accepting mass migration. And let's see here. It looks like my... For some reason, my screen froze up. Oh, there we go. I don't know. I, I had this update that was done, and I always hate this. The uh, Microsoft, they, they wanted me to update from Windows 10 to Windows 11. So I went ahead and I accepted the update. And it seems like every anytime you do an update like that, a major update of changing an operating system, they're always it, it, it gets a little, uh, little buggy sometimes. And I don't know if that's what this is or if it's something else. But okay. So I've, my screen's unfrozen here. So let's take a look at at a few additional things. Now, I mentioned that this idea that we are supposed to, you know, as the Pope said, that we're supposed to see 
Christ in the faces of all the migrants that are pouring across our southern border. If you're in Europe, all the migrants who are flooding across the the Mediterranean or coming in through a land route. And if if you reject these, you know you're you're according to the Pope, you know you're rejecting Christ. This is a very common assertion that's made by Roman Catholic, either people who are actually formally part of the church or by Roman Catholic politicians, uh, and even by ignorant Protestants who uh, who make the same argument. Very common. And you see this throughout the year, but you see it especially at Christmas time. And that's why I wanted to address this right now. I've wanted to talk about this in the, the past few weeks. I haven't gotten around to it. I'm actually glad I waited because this particular article by the Pope, the one that I just read through, that didn't come out until the, the Wednesday after Christmas. So it's, it's kind of convenient that, uh, that he said what he said when he said it. Well, as I mentioned, there are a few other examples of this kind of thing. And, and I just wanted to, to go through and cite a few of these. There was a, a story, and this is from Fox News. This is actually from 2018, December 25th, 2018. And the headline here, it says, Ocasio-Cortez says Jesus was a refugee in Christmas tweet. And just reading through a little bit of this, it says, U.S. Representative-elect Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Democrat New York, wished her Twitter follows a Merry Christmas Tuesday by referring to the newborn Jesus as a refugee. Joy to the world, Ocasio-Cortez wrote. Merry Christmas, everyone. Here's to a holiday filled with happiness, family, and love for all people, including refugee babies and mangers, plus their parents. End quote. Okay, so now this is actually kind of an interesting tweet here because she is attempting to to state the the immigration uh, ideas of the Roman Catholic Church, but she doesn't get it quite right. And uh, Fox News points this out. They kind of call her out here and they say, Mary and Joseph are not depicted as refugees in the nativity story. According to the Gospel of Luke, Joseph brings the pregnant Mary to Bethlehem so that he may enroll in a census ordered by the Roman Emperor Augustus. The couple are forced to take shelter in a stable where Jesus is born due to a lack of room at the inn. However, the Gospel of Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, Mary and Joseph flee into Egypt with the infant Jesus after King Herod of Judea orders the murder of every boy aged two and under in Bethlehem after the Magi ask him where to find the newborn king of the Jews. The Holy Family escape the slaughter and are told by an angel to return to Israel once Herod is dead. So, uh, Ocasio-Cortez, she confuses the birth of Christ and the flight to Egypt. And the the Pope has never claimed that the birth of Christ represented a, a refugee family and a refugee birth. It's the flight to Egypt that he claims is is the uh, the archetype, the the pattern for all all migration. So Ocasio Cortez, she doesn't doesn't quite get it right here, and it's kind of comical, uh, actually, how how wrong she is. She doesn't even state the bad doctrine of Rome correctly. Well, anyway, um, there's another tweet, and this was also put out by Alexandria Ocasio Cortez the same day, and it, it's interesting and. This is a, the podcast format here. Now, just to let you know, this is actually the second edition of of this uh, of episode seventy four. I did a live stream last night of this, and I had some technical difficulties. Um, the main technical difficulty was was me. I, when I started, when I record these, I I do the live stream. I use a, a service called called Restream that allows me to stream out to to Facebook and to YouTube and to Twitter. 
and I, I use that, but I also at the same time I record the the live stream on on a podcast recorder that I have. Well, kind of there was a technical difficulty with the podcast recorder yesterday, and well, they say the technical problem was me. I forgot to start it. You know, it, it's amazing, but these the podcast recorder really works well when I actually turn it on, but when I don't turn it on, it doesn't work at all for some strange weird reason. I don't know why that is. <laughs> Uh, anyway, that's really frustrating stuff. I got to the end of that. I thought, oh, good grief. I didn't turn this on. Well, the good thing is I the uh, the Restream service actually does record, and I was able to download, and I, I edited a what I was going to go ahead and put out as a podcast. But there were some also problems with the Restream. There was some internet issues, it seems like, and and there were a lot of dropouts and, and issues with, with that. That actually happened during the live stream, and I could see it was dropping in and out. And the recording was kind of the same way. And I thought, this is some important material, and I want to have a better audio version of that. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm re-recording episode 74. So this is actually take two. I'm going to go ahead and leave the live stream up as it is, the original live stream. But I'm also going to go ahead and, and I'm, I'm re-recording episode 74 as well. So the, the podcast, this podcast, is going to be the same material, but it'll be slightly different from the way it was presented on, on the live stream. So with that said, and I'm going to put a link in the show notes to this uh, for this article or this tweet rather, but there was another tweet that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez put out back on Christmas in 2018. And the tweet itself, I'm not going to read what she had to say here, but the the reason I wanted to cite it is because there was a an image that she included with it. And the image that's included it's it's a, a drawing of and these it appears to be a Hispanic couple with with a child. So they're they're walking through the wilderness. The the wife is is carrying the child, and they all have halos. You know, like you see some of these, and I, I don't know if the term icon is the correct term to use, but when you see some of the iconography from say. Uh, the early church, you know, whether it was uh, the Roman Catholic Church or, or Eastern Orthodoxy, and there's a saint, they always put sort of a halo around the, the head of the person. Well, when you look at this particular picture, uh, both uh, the husband, the wife, and the child have halos surrounding them, and the, the halo surrounding the child is a, is a special type of a halo, and I, I suppose that means to identify the child as, as Jesus. And it's this, this, um, Latino couple, and they're they're going through the wilderness, presumably headed to the United States. So again, this is taking that idea that Pope Francis talks about that we're to see in the in the migrants the the family of Jesus, that we're to see Christ in the in in these migrants in the in the face of these migrants. It takes that idea and it puts that in picture form. So again, and I'm only bringing this up because I just want you to understand just how common a concept this is within the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is a Roman Catholic. She went to a Roman Catholic school. And I believe she went to a Jesuit school. Uh, I'd have to go I need to go back and double check that. Maybe I shouldn't say that, but I know she went to a Roman Catholic school and she's very heavily influenced by Roman Catholic economic and political thought. So, of course, naturally, she would put something like this out. Another example of the use of, of the image of the, uh, the, the flight into Egypt is if you go out to the, the Justice for Immigrants page, the Justice for Immigrants website, that's a website of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. And Justice for Immigrants, that is a, it's a, I don't know what the correct term is. It's either a, a, 
it's an organization run by the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. So when you, you go to the Justice for Immigrants page, and again, I'm going to put a link out there so you can see this. You can see the logo for the United States Conference of Bishops. And right next to that is the logo for the Justice for Immigrants organization. And it also depicts the flight to Egypt. It's kind of stylized, so it's it, it's not completely obvious. I mean, if like, if you looked at it apart from from the uh, from knowing Roman Catholic doctrine about immigration, you might not pick up the fact that it's supposed to be you know depict the flight of of Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. But that's what this is. They change the logo every now and then. This one's a little bit harder to pick up. But some of the logos they've had in the past have even been more explicit about it. But again, you know, this is the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. This is an official organization within the Roman Catholic Church. And again, they're also promulgating that that same idea through their logo. That is the idea that in the face of the migrants that we should see Jesus. Again, this is this is Roman Catholic uh, teaching on on the subject of immigration. Now, the Pope's rhetoric, you know, when we, we read the article there in Breitbart, in Breitbart, you know, the Pope's rhetoric may be impassioned, but is it biblical? That's the question that we want to ask here. You know, the Pope's rhetoric about immigration, yeah, he, he can give an impassioned sermon, but is it a biblical sermon? You know, that is, does, do the scriptures support the Pope's claims? Now, the short answer to that is, is no. No, it does not. Now, as Christians, we should know that anything coming out of of the Pope's mouth is is going to be false in one way or the other. Why is that? Because the office of the papacy is the office of Antichrist. Now, that's something that used to be widely understood by the by Reformed believers. All that started to change in the late 19th and early 20th century. The 1647 Westminster Confession of Faith, that's the original wording of the Confession of Faith, had it right. And it read this. This is from chapter 25 of the 1647 Westminster Confession of Faith. Quote, There is no head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ, nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof. But is that Antichrist, that man of sin and son of perdition, that exalteth himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God? End quote. Now, if you go out to your Westminster Confession today, if you're a Presbyterian and you, you, you go out and you see the version of the Westminster Confession that's used by your church, it probably just says this. There is no head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ, nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof. Full stop. That everything that comes after that, that identifies the Pope as Antichrist, the man of sin, the son of perdition, etc., all that stuff's been removed. It's just been completely dropped. In my opinion, that is a major mistake. It's a bit, and, and it, it's, it's almost as if Protestants, it's almost as if Reformed believers have engaged in an act of what used to be called unilateral disarmament. Now, if you're an old guy like me, I'm in my mid-50s, and maybe you grew up during the Cold War, the term unilateral disarmament is something that you'd recognize. Now, if you're a younger person, maybe you've never heard that term before. But back during the days of the Cold War, unilateral disarmament was was something that was very often discussed. So, so what was unilateral disarmament? Well, there was this idea, at least it was put forth by some people, you know, these sort of hippy-dippy type thinkers, who would, would go out and they would 
would say, well, you know, this, this whole conflict between, between the United States and the Soviet Union and, you know, and the, the, the free world as it was termed back then and, and the Soviet bloc, well, this whole conflict, it's really just a great big misunderstanding. And if the United States, if, if, why, if we just beat all our swords in the plowshares and get rid of all of our tanks and, and fighters and bombers and, you know, aircraft carriers and nuclear missiles, and we get rid of all that stuff, and we show the the Russians, the the, the Soviets that that we that we we just love them, and 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 you know we just have you know we're we're going to all wear you know flower power uh, t shirts or something like this, and you know if we all just get together and sing kumbaya or something, why they realize that that they like us, and and all of the all of the threat of nuclear war is going to go away. Well, you know, I mean that was was pretty darn naive. Uh, there's no question about it, but there were people who did argue that way. You know that the, the way that to solve the Cold War was for the West to just put aside all of its weapons, you know, beat its its swords into plowshares, and 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 demonstrate our good intentions to the the Soviet Union, the the Soviet uh, bosses in, in the Kremlin. Well, I mean that that's pretty stupid, uh, just to be blunt about it. But there were people who thought that. And in like fashion, I think that the Protestants have unilaterally disarmed themselves. It used to be that Protestants, and you didn't have to be a, a, a great theologian to understand this, regular, ordinary church members understood who Antichrist was. But that teaching has been completely, has completely disappeared from Protestant churches. I mean, ask yourself this. Have you ever heard a sermon. I mean, if you go to, a, say, a Bible-believing Protestant church, uh, and it doesn't even have to be necessarily an explicitly Reformed church, but if you go to a church that claims to to adhere to the Scriptures, that teaches the gospel of justification by belief alone, have you ever heard from the from the pulpit in your in person a sermon identifying the papacy as, as Antichrist? I would say you almost certainly have not. I personally have never heard that myself. And I think that's probably true of most people. Now, I, you know, the churches that I have gone to in my life are not uh, liberal churches. They're not, you know, they are are uh, Bible believing churches. They are churches that, that do teach the gospel, but they they do not teach this point. And that's true across Protestantism anymore. That that idea has almost completely disappeared. I remember a few years ago there was a uh, a person in the United States that was running for president. I can't remember was it in 2012 maybe or 20. I think it was maybe 2012. Her name was Michelle Bachman, and she and her husband went to some conservative Lutheran church, and it came out that I guess the church was teaching, or maybe I don't know if the confession of the church. Uh, had this in it, but that that the Pope was the Antichrist, and it was this great big scandal, and and uh, Michelle Bachman went out there and worked very hard to distance herself from that. You know, it's it's almost as if Protestants are embarrassed to talk about this sort of thing. Now, of course, you know, as as a woman, she shouldn't have been running for president, so I'm you know that's a whole other issue, and I don't want to get off on that particular uh, side right there. But I'm just bringing out the fact that that was one example where I have seen. It come out where somebody would say, "Hey, you you think that the Pope is the Antichrist?" And people run away. Oh no, please don't accuse me of that. Oh, I'm so sorry. You know, I mean, th- this is how how people are. I mean, we're embarrassed to speak the truth. Uh, we as as Protestants, and this is, I mean, brothers and sisters, this has got to change. Is that we cannot be afraid of talking about this. So anyway, that kind of went on a bit of a tangent there. 
but you know, again, you know, the the Pope's rhetoric is very impassioned, but this is coming from the lips of Antichrist, so we know it's wrong. Now, we may not know exactly when you first read an article, such as the one I read there in Breitbart, we may not know exactly what's wrong with it, but we can be sure that there, there is foolishness in it, that there are lies in it. And it's our job as Christians to go compare what the Pope has to say to the Scriptures and find out where the foolishness is. So where is the foolishness in the Pope's address? Well, for that, let's turn to a key papal text guiding Rome's immigration stance. And the text I want to refer to here today, it's, it's a 1952 apostolic constitution. It was written by Pope Pius XII called Exul Familia Nazaretana, or Exul Familia Nazaretana simply just means the, the emigre family of Nazareth, if you want to put that into, into plain English. And I'm going to provide a link to that document in the show notes, but I just want to read the first paragraph from that uh, from that constitution. We'll talk a little bit about some of the ideas here, because this apostolic constitution is really the source of what Pope Francis is teaching. So again, let's just read uh, uh, the first paragraph, and then we'll we'll break it down a little bit here. So, quote, and this is from Exul Familia Nazaretana. The emigre holy family of Nazareth fleeing into Egypt is the archetype of every refugee family. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph living in exile in Egypt to escape the fury of an evil king are, for all times and all places, the models and protectors of every migrant, alien, and refugee of whatever kind who, whether compelled by fear of persecution or by want, is forced to leave his native land, his beloved parents and relatives, his close friends, and to seek a foreign soil, end quote. So this apostolic constitution is, I, I don't know, it, it's probably not true that this was the first use of this idea of, of the, the Holy Family uh, fleeing into Egypt as the, uh, as the archetype of, of all migrants everywhere, but it is the document which these concepts were formalized. Again, it goes back to 1952. It was written by Pope Pius XII. I think his real name was Eugenio Pacelli, uh, I believe it was. I, I think I'm pronouncing Hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly, or at least close to correctly anyway. But it was written by Pope Pius XII. Interestingly enough, Pope Pius XII, he was the subject of a book that was written, I guess, a little bit over 20 years ago now, in the late 1990s. Uh, it was called Hitler's Pope. And Pope Pius XII, he was the pope that signed a concordat with the Nazi government of Germany. And he has uh, you know, received a lot of criticism in that, that particular book for uh, essentially aiding aiding the Nazi regime in Germany, which, which he did. I mean, which, I mean the, the Church of Rome supported uh, the fascists in, in Europe, uh, both in, in Germany. They had an alliance with them, both in Germany and in Italy. In fact, there was a book that just came out. There's a book that came out in 2014, and I just found it over the, the last couple of days talking about the relationship between the, the Pope, between the Roman Catholic Church, and, and the fascists. And I haven't had a chance to read it yet. I just got it, and maybe I'll I'll use that and refer to that in in some future podcasts or, or future blog posts. But anyway, that that was that's a little background on Pope Pius XII here. But he wrote this apostolic constitution. Now you may be asking yourself, okay, so what's an apostolic constitution? Well, an apostolic constitution is 
a lot like a is like a an encyclical, but it's actually even more authoritative than an encyclical. And if you go to Roman Catholic sources and you you look up what uh, the term apostolic constitution, there are a number of official Roman Catholic sources that will tell you that is considered the most uh, authoritative of all papal type letters. I mean, there are different types of letters that popes write. You know, there are encyclicals, there are exhortations, uh, for example, and, and probably some other types of documents as well. Well, the apostolic constitution is the top dog. That's the alpha dog of all the, all the, uh, the papal writings. And an apostolic constitution is used to establish a lot of times a, an entirely new organization within the Roman Catholic Church. And I think that may have been the case here with, with Exo Familia. But anyway, that's just kind of a general definition of, of what an apostolic constitution is. So you can take the words that are written here. These are, this is a very important document within the Roman Catholic Church. And what, what's kind of interesting is a lot of people will say, well, you know, the Pope Francis, why well, he's kind of a kind of a loose cannon. He's out there doing all these things that are, are way outside the 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 history and the teaching of, of the Roman Catholic Church. But you know, in, in maybe in a few things he's tried to break some new ground. But but really if you look at the bulk of what he he argues, uh, he is very well within the church tradition. So when you see all of this leftist uh, leftist type of argumentation, this very socialist type of argumentation that he uses, uh, he's not stretching Roman Catholic doctrine at all. That's what Roman Catholic economic and political teaching is all about. It's that at its root. So he's not, you know, it's not like he's importing foreign ideas into, uh, into the Roman Catholic Church. He's speaking from the church's own resources. And I think that's important to understand. And everything that Pope Francis talked about in that that sermon that he gave this past, last week on migration uh, can be traced right to uh, Exo Familia Nazaretana. Right down to this idea, you know, that you know the Pope had this idea that you know we should see in the migrant the face of Christ. Well, I mean, that's coming right here from that very first paragraph that I read to you from Exo Familia. You know, the idea that the Holy Family of Nazareth fleeing Egypt is the archetype of every refugee family. And, and that's why the Pope said what he said. Now, there are several reasons. I don't want to challenge these ideas. I mean, I think this, this whole assertion that's made by, uh, by in, in Exal Familia is easily refuted from Scripture. I mean, what's interesting, and it's probably not surprising, of course, is that, the, is that Pope Pius XII uh, didn't cite any scripture. I should say he didn't cite very much scripture. There are, at least in the main body of the text, I don't think there are any scriptural quotations. He does quote canon law, for example, but he doesn't quote the Bible. And, and again, that's not surprising because, of course, the Bible is not the controlling text for the ideas that are put forth by the Roman church state. You know, that's, uh, you know, the idea of sola scriptura or scripture alone, that was a concept that was one of the key concepts that was put forth by the Protestant reformers. They were to take our ideas about not only Christian theology, but also about politics and economics. We're to take all of our ideas from the word of God by scripture alone. You know, that all the statements of all men must be brought back to scripture and compared to it. 
And that's what I'm going to do here. I'm going to, I'm going to apply that idea of bringing the, the, all statements of all men back to the Scriptures and comparing it to the Scriptures. That is what Martin Luther, you know, he termed the Schriftprinzip. I like to say that. That's a German term, Schriftprinzip. It's kind of fun to speak German. <laughs> but anyway, um, the uh, Schriftprinzip, I mean, if you translate that into English, it simply just means writing principle. And again, it's the idea that, that all statements of all men must be brought back to Scripture and compared to it. And when we do that, we're going to find that there are a number of problems with, with the assertions that are made not only by Pope Francis, but even more fundamentally in the, the document Exel Familia itself. And I'm not even going to touch on everything because it'd be too much to do just in one, one podcast, but I want to give you at least a little flavor of some of this. So let's start here. Um, first, you know, it, it's very common for people to, to refer to, uh, to hear Jesus and his family described as illegal immigrants or illegal aliens. But it's worth asking this question, you know, what immigration laws did they break? You know, Egypt and Judea were both parts of the Roman Empire, and their flight from Judea to Egypt was not across national boundaries in, in the sense that, say, what's taking place on America's southern border. What they did was more akin to moving from one state to another, rather from one nation to another. For instance, in, you know, if I get in my car and I, I drive south and I cross the Ohio River, I can be in Kentucky in, you know, probably, you know, half an hour, 40 minutes, something like that. I can go to a different state. Well, that's not immigration. And there's no law against my doing that. I mean, I'm just moving from one American state to another. So, and, and that's really what, what was going on, I think, more similar to what was going on in the, the flight to Egypt than, than, what the, you know, than what the document Exel, Exel Familia lets on or what the Pope let, lets on. Egypt and Judea, again, they were both parts of the Roman Empire. They were both provinces of the Roman Empire. So they were both under the same government, the same national government at any rate. Now, second, you know, the flight to Egypt was, was a clear case of, of refugees uh, fleeing religious persecution. Now, I generally don't quote the UN uh, favorably at all, but I am going to quote the from the UN's uh, definition of a refugee. It comes from the 1951 Refugee Convention, and I think it's a pretty decent definition, so I'm going to go ahead and use that. And it says this. This is how, a, how the UN defines a refugee. Quote, someone who is unable or unwilling to return to their country of origin owing to a well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group, or political opinion. End quote. Now, one of the things when you, you listen to uh, rhetoric from the popes or you read uh, various church documents, is you can find within those documents some isolated statements that are true. You know, Rome doesn't just give you 100% uh, false information, but what they do is they mix falsehood with truth. Now, John Robbins talked about that, and I think he talked about, for instance, it was like, he used an example putting strychnine in the orange juice. And you can have orange juice that's maybe 99% orange juice and, and 1% strychnine. Well, but if you take that, you're going to die. It's going to kill you. You know, mixing, mixing uh, lies, missing, mixing falsehood with truth is very, very dangerous because it can appear to people that you're speaking the truth. You know, you can smuggle in false ideas under the cover of certain basic truths. So, I mean, we're, 
were Joseph and Mary and Jesus, were they refugees? Well, yeah, I, I think they definitely did fit that definition. I mean, they were certainly fleeing persecution. Now, they weren't you know, leaving there. You know, it depends on how you want to define the term country. As I said, they were moving from one province of the Roman Empire to another. Um, but yeah, they, they were certainly fleeing persecution, and they had it was a, they had a well founded fear of being persecuted. I mean, they were told by the angel, "You better get out of Judea, you know, take your family and go." And you know, if they had stayed, you know, some very bad things probably would have happened to them. So it was good that they they obeyed the the voice of the angel who was sent by God, and, and they left. You know, they fled. But a lot of what's going on today, and, and this is where, where you talk about mixing truth, truth and error, a lot of what's going on today, you know, these aren't refugees in the sense that there are people that are fleeing, fleeing persecution, but rather they are coming to Europe, they're coming to the United States for economic reasons. And among those reasons uh, are included the massive welfare subsidies they expect to receive and which the, our, the Roman Catholic Church state and other social organizations demand the taxpayers provide to them. Now, in, in fact, some of the, the migrants coming up, they, they've been interviewed by various reporters, and some of the migrants refer to something they call la invitacion. La invitacion, that's Spanish. Now, you don't really need to know a whole lot of Spanish to be able to translate la invitacion. Yeah, what's that mean in, in English? Well, it just means the invitation, you know, the invitation, you know, maybe in capital letters surrounded by quotation marks. Well, you know, so what do some of these migrants mean when they talk about the invitation? Well, they're referring to the uh, uh, some of the statements that have been made by Joe Biden and by the Democrats over the past couple couple of years. Uh, basically throwing open the, the gates of the United States to and saying, come one, come all. And you think back during the 2020 presidential election, it, this was early on in one of the debates, and there were a whole bunch of these Democratic candidates on stage, maybe about a dozen or so. And the question was put to them, you know, who uh, who supports the idea of giving uh, uh, universal health benefits to uh, – they didn't use the term illegal aliens, but that's essentially what they're asking. So, you know, you didn't have to be a citizen of the country to anybody who's in the country for any reason who supports – putting these people uh, in line to, to receive uh, taxpayer-funded health benefits. And the hand of every single one of those candidates went up. I think Joe Biden was included in that, that particular group. Every single candidate raised his hand. Now, these Democrats knew full well that, that this is a very powerful message that was being sent out to migrants in South and Central America saying, come one, come all. You know, and, and I mean, if, if you're in living in Nicaragua or Guatemala or, or Mexico and, and you're not making much money, or maybe you don't make any money at all and you're struggling financially, are you going to want to respond to that and say, well, hey, I can go to America and I can get free health care. Plus, I can get a job and I can, can do better than where I am now. Well, I'm going up there. And, you know, I can understand why they do that. And I'm not angry. I'm not angry at the people who are uh, engaging in some of this migration because I understand why they're doing it. They're being encouraged and incentivized by these politicians who, in many cases, are, I think, deliberately carrying out the Vatican's immigration policy. I mean, Joe Biden himself is a Roman Catholic. He goes to a, a Jesuit-run parish, 
And he basically spouts Roman Catholic slash Jesuit rhetoric when it comes to immigration and, and a whole range of things, not just immigration, but certainly immigration is uh, he hews very closely to, to what the Roman Catholic Church wants. He's essentially their boy in the White House. So, I mean, there's that, that La Invitacion. And, of course, there are other things that, that they have done to sweeten the pot as well. You know, they're, they've gutted ICE, you know, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, to the point where there's, there are very few people that are being deported. They have, and this is absolute lunacy, they were talking about giving, I think, up to $400,000 to each member of a migrant family who was, was separated during Trump's presidency. So, I mean, th- this was a situation where you could have had uh, millions of dollars in payments going to a single family. Now, right now, the the Democrats have, have kind of dropped the whole idea, it seems like. I think they were getting way too much heat for that. And, of course, the congressional elections are coming up in 20, 2022 here. So they're coming up in, what, I guess about 10 months. And I, I don't think they think that that's politically feasible for them to push at this time. But I wouldn't be surprised if they come back with that idea if, if they you know, say the election, if it goes their way. I mean, it, it's, it's absolutely stunning what they're trying to do. You know, and I think it's very interesting in, in all this discussion, whether it's in the Pope or whether it's from the Democrats, what's good for the American people never comes up. The only people whose who's good and well, well-being is discussed are the illegal aliens, the people that are crashing our borders, the people that are violating American immigration law, they're held up as righteous. And if you're an American who says, hey, wait a minute, there's a problem here. Well, you know, you're called all kinds of names. You're called a racist and, you know, blah, 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 you know, and an all around very bad person. So, I mean, it's a, this whole thing with, with the, the way the, the Pope frames the migrant issue, the way the, the press carries forth the, that same framing, the way the politicians frame this, it's a case of calling good evil and evil good. Now, of course, the prophet Isaiah pronounced a woe on that. But this is something that goes on. Uh, and and it's, it's a very obvious attempt to guilt trip Americans, and of course, the same playbook, the same play is run in Europe and any other Western country to to get them to accept migrants. It's a it's a giant guilt trip. So let's see. Moving on, third, uh, where Pope Francis said, "No country can exempt itself from the duty to take in migrants." Now, this was a a an article that I had discussed, I believe, last week or the week before. And in this particular case, the Pope seemed to focus his remarks on Viktor Orban of of Hungary. And the Pope said this. uh, I'll read the article here. This is also a Breitbart piece by Thomas D. Williams, interestingly enough. He's the same one that that wrote the the first Breitbart article that I talked about. It's dated December 22nd, 2021. Rome. Pope Francis appeared to take a shot at Hungary on Wednesday, insisting no country can exempt itself from the obligation to take in migrants. On Tuesday, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban rejected a ruling by the European Union's Court of Justice that his government had failed to fulfill its obligation to relax its immigration laws. We will maintain the existing regime even if the European Court ordered us to change it, Orban said Tuesday in the end-of-year news conference. So, you know, here Pope Francis is talking about the duty, the obligation of receiving countries to take in migrants. And this is something you see, this is another concept, an, another idea that's, that you see all the time in Roman Catholic immigration rhetoric. It's, it's your duty. You must do this. You have an obligation 
to, to take in these people. It's very Kantian. You know, if, if you're familiar with the, the philosophy of Immanuel Kant at all, uh, he was always talking about, you know, the, the, you have a moral duty. You know, it's your duty, it's your job, you know. And in, in some ways, the Pope here, he kind of reminds me a bit of the Pharisees. You know, Jesus said of the Pharisees, and they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's backs, but they themselves won't move so much as a finger to lift them. And, and the Roman Catholic Church is just like this. They're always talking about it. it's your duty, it's your duty, it's your duty. You must do this. You have an obligation to take these people in. Now, and, and of course, it, it goes beyond just uh, exempting oneself, or it, it goes beyond just accepting migrants into your country. So it's not enough just to, for migrants to come into your country, but you have to foot the bill for them as well. You have to foot the bill for them. Now, here's the thing. The Bible makes no provision for governments to make welfare payments. Uh, the welfare state, you know, the socialist welfare state that has grown up in the West, whether it's in the United States or in, in other Western countries, is no part of the scriptures. Uh, there is no provision for it in the, the U.S. Constitution. It is unchristian, it is unconstitutional, it is immoral to force one person to subsidize another person. Now, the, the proper term for that is theft. You know, the Apostle Paul said, and what somewhere he, I can't remember what book this is in, but you know, he said, uh, if, he, if he will not work, and neither let him eat. You know, we all have an obligation to, to work to support ourselves. All of us have that. And the government does not exist to take money from people who are working, productive people, and give it to people who won't work. You know, that or, or, or who, who don't have what they quote need in their own eyes. That, that does not exist. That doesn't exist. You know, one American does not owe another American a living. And if one American does not owe another American a living, much less does, do Americans owe a, owe financial support to foreigners. And yet, Pope Francis continually talks about no country can exempt itself from the duty to take in migrants. And it's, it, again, it's not just taking them in. It, and this is one of the things, this is the way the Roman Catholic Church works, is they, they, talk, they, they don't talk about, at least overtly, the obligation and the cost of, of paying for all of the, the care and maintenance of these migrants once you take them in. No, they, 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 they lead with this idea of taking them in. And people say, oh, well, it's one thing to take them in. Yeah, I'll be happy to do that. But then, of course, you have to turn around and you have to pay for it. And, and who pays for it? Well, the taxpayers do. But, you know, the Pope is always, he's a little bit vague on where that money comes from. And, of course, they don't want to say it up front because they know that they get massive pushback, and rightfully so. Now, think about this, and, and this is, is something that's very interesting. And getting back to this idea of, of why the, the, uh, the flight to Egypt is not a good model uh, for, for migration, the kind of migration, it's, it's, not, it's not a good application of Scripture to the current migration situation that the West is facing, is that we don't know how the, uh, how the family was supported while they were in Egypt. Okay, Joseph took Mary and, and Jesus, and they fled to Egypt. Now, there wasn't any welfare state back in, in Joseph's day, so they, they weren't supported by uh, they didn't go on the public dole, and even if there had been a welfare state of some sort, it would have been sinful for them to to have taken advantage of that, uh, because that's theft. That represents theft. 
Now, the Bible is silent on how they supported themselves. And I mean, we can speculate on how the family supported itself. You know, I mean, of course, Joseph was a tradesman. I think he's usually uh, thought that he was a carpenter. And so maybe he worked as a, as a carpenter. Maybe he did that, uh, plied his trade while he was in Egypt and supported the family. You know, maybe they stayed with uh, the Jewish community that was in, in Egypt at the time. There was still a, a sizable uh, Jewish community in Egypt at that time from the, uh, from the diaspora after, the, you know, after the, uh, the Babylonian exile. I think there was a, a large Jewish community, for instance, in, in Alexandria at the time. You know, we don't even know where in Egypt they stayed. We know that they went to Egypt. That, that's all we know. Maybe they stayed with them. Maybe they got support from uh, other members of the community. You know, maybe God miraculously provided for them. We don't know. But they didn't go on the dole. There's no evidence that they went on the dole. And again, even if they had, that would have been sinful. And I, I highly doubt that, that Joseph would have done that or that God would have allowed that uh, as a means of, of supporting his, uh, his son when, uh, when in Egypt. You know, I, I think we can, re, we can reject that. I mean, that would have made Jesus a recipient of stolen property. And, and of course, Christ never sinned. So we know that he wasn't that the family was not involved in in the in the kind of welfare state schemes that the Pope demands uh, be applied to to modern day migrants. A fourth problem with this particular analysis, this idea that the the flight to Egypt is a model for all migrants everywhere, is the scale is all wrong. Now, in the case of Joseph and his family, there were a total of three people who fled to, fled to Egypt. There's just three people. But, I mean, the numbers that are taking place today in terms of migration are almost cartoonish. And I, I found just a few examples here. I wanted to just go through these briefly with you. Here's a headline. This is from Newsmax. And the headline is this. DHS, more than 52,000 Afghan refugees resettled in U.S. in 2021. And this is dated December 31st, 2021, so just a couple of days ago. And, and just reading briefly through this, the Department of Homeland Security is reporting that more than 52,000 Afghan refugees have been resettled throughout the U.S. Yesterday, the last group of Afghan nationals temporarily housed at Fort Bliss, Texas, as part of Operation Allies Welcome, departed the base. Fort Bliss is the third of eight Department of Defense installations supporting the resettlement of Afghan nationals that are also known as safe havens to complete operations, the agency announced in a press conference. To date, more than 52,000 Afghan evacuees have been resettled in communities across the country. These resettlement efforts are led by the Department of State in close coordination with more than 290 local resettlement affiliates. So these are refugees just from Afghanistan, from that big uh, airlift that they did. And of course, they're, they're being resettled by one of the biggest uh, resettlers, probably the biggest resettler of them is Catholic Charities. And Catholic Charities gets paid very handsomely by the U.S. government to resettle these, uh, these Afghan refugees in your community. And of course, put them on the dole because refugees are, are eligible for the entire panoply of the American welfare state. So they're going to come over here and they're immediately going to go on the dole and they're probably going to stay on the dole. You know, this is welfare Welfare, migration, immigration, and refugee resettlement. It's weaponized against the American people. We're being forced to bear the burden for this. Here's another headline. Nearly 400,000 anchor babies born in 2021 outpacing U.S. births birth in 49 states. So, so what's an anchor baby? Well, we have this insane uh, law here in the United States of America that if a woman 
gives birth within the territory of the United States, that child is automatically considered an American citizen. Now, it, it matters not what the, the ties, whether or not the, the mother or the father has any kind of legal ties to the United States. They could have sneaked across the border an hour ago. You know, they, they could have come through, uh, through the, uh, come across the Rio Grande and you know, the mother could have given birth uh, a short time later and presto changeo, you've got uh, a new American citizen, instant American citizen, you know, just add water. And, of course, that child is eligible for all the massive subsidies of the American welfare state. And it becomes very, very difficult to deport the parents, regardless of how they came, because they have this, this American citizen child. And that's why they call them anchor babies. And for the last several years, um, the Center for Immigration Studies has estimated that about 400,000 anchor babies are born in the United States each and every single year. Think about that for a moment. That's more births than were. That is uh, is more births than occurred to American citizens in all but one state. Only the state of California were more children were more than four hundred thousand uh, babies born to American citizens. So that goes to show you again. You know, we're talking about scale here, right? You know, we said the scale is all wrong. Uh, with the uh, the flight to Egypt, I mean the numbers are just huge: fifty two thousand Afghans, four hundred thousand anchor babies born, and it gets worse than that. Still, here's another. Th- this is an article here. This is from the Hill uh, newspaper called the Hill, and the headline is "Situation to Southern Border Worse Than You Probably Realize." And this is back from November fifteenth of twenty twenty one, so it's about a month and a half old, and it talks about the shocking numbers of people coming across the southern border. And let me scroll through here. Yeah, here, here's the paragraph I wanted to read. So I'm just going to read one paragraph out of this article. Uh, quote, uh, the Border Patrol apprehended more than 1.3 million illegal crossers in the first eight months of the Biden administration. This brought apprehensions for fiscal 2021 up to more than 1.6 million, which is the highest number of illegal crossings recorded in any fiscal year since the government began tracking illegal crossings in 1960. And 10,763 of the illegal crosses were convicted criminals. These figures do not include gotaways, that is, migrants who successfully avoided apprehension after making an illegal entry that was detected by the Customs and, uh, Customs and Border Protection sensors, video cameras, or agents. And again, no one knows how many migrants succeeded in making an illegal entry without being detected. So... During fiscal 2021, there were 1.6 million illegal immigrants apprehended by the Border Patrol. That's an insane number. I mean, again, you know, th- this isn't three people. We're talking about millions. You know, and how many people were not apprehended, we don't know. So how many people illegally poured across America's borders in fiscal 2021? I, the number is probably north of 2 million. Maybe it's north of 3 million or 4 million. I don't know. But it's a huge number. It's a gigantic number. And, and this is all being encouraged by the Biden administration. It's la invitacion. It's one of the results of that. And the, the writer, Nolan Rappaport, he, uh, he concludes his article by saying this. He says, this is the worst border security crisis we have ever had. And it is likely to get even worse unless Biden reverses his immigration policies and starts enforcing our immigration laws. Well, you know, Biden has to some degree reversed himself, not because he wants to, but I think because he politically has to. 
But what you have to understand is that the Biden administration, you know, you got a Roman Catholic president. Well, I, I don't think he's a legitimate president, but he, he's in the office. And so you have this Roman Catholic sitting in the office of the presidency. Who's carrying out the, the immigration policies of Pope Francis? Now, one last uh, one, just to give you an example of the scale of, of the crisis that's occurring here. Uh, one last example of that. This is a tweet from Griff Jenkins. Now, Griff Jenkins is a reporter for Fox News, and he covers uh, immigration. And this is a tweet that from December 29th, so just a few days ago. Quote, crisis at the border, not taking a break for the holidays. In the uh, Customs and Border Protection Rio Grande Valley sector, more than 1,100 in the last 24 hours, up 160%, and a surge in unaccompanied minors, up 428% with nearly 20,000 this fiscal year to date. As for known Godaways, 12,535 since October. Again, these are stunning figures. So what he's saying is in the 24 hours preceding the, the tweet that he sent out on December 29th, that there are more than uh, 1,100 in the last 24 hours. Uh, Let's see, uh, 1,100, yeah, up on everything. Okay, so I think he's just talking there about uh, illegal immigrants who were apprehended uh, in that 24-hour period. That is insane, and that's just in one sector, okay? Uh, the Rio Grande Valley sector, which I, I don't know for sure, but I, I think that that covers the, the, basically the border between Texas and Mexico. That's uh, the Rio Grande River. And he talks about the surge in unaccompanied minors, 20,000 this fiscal year to date. Well, the fiscal year for the United States federal government starts on October 1st of every year. So from October 1st of 2021 through December 29th, there were 20,000 unaccompanied minors just within the Rio Grande Valley sector. 20,000 kids. And again, for known Godaways, he, he gives the, the number as 12,535, again, since October, probably going back to October 1st. So these are huge numbers, and this is just in one sector. You know, this doesn't include the people pouring across the border in Arizona. It doesn't include anything that's going on in California. It doesn't include uh, some of the other uh, types of, of illegal immigration, for instance. I mean, there are examples of people taking their boats and running them up on the beach and uh, getting out and making a run for it. I mean, that's, uh, that's happened. I think that happened in South Carolina, or maybe it was, no, I guess it was in Florida. I think it was some people from Haiti doing that. And I, I don't know how much of that goes on. But yeah, I mean, this is just one sector. This is just part of the border. And you've got these insane numbers going on. So again, the, the crisis is, is the, the scale of the current crisis we're facing in the United States is, is orders of magnitude greater than the three persons going from Judea to Egypt. The fifth point that I wanted to make about this, and this is another uh, problem with the, the analysis of the Pope and of the Exul Familia, the Apostolic Constitution. Fifth, it is inexcusable that Exul Familia and Pope Francis and other representatives of the Babylonian harlot focus on a passage that offers little parallel to the current migrant crisis while ignoring completely passages that apply directly to our current migrant crisis, the current situation that we're facing. Now think for a moment, and just think with me here, and ask yourself this, are there any passages in the Bible that speak about uh, mass migration? Are there any examples in Scripture of, say, a mass exodus? Well, 
if uh, if you came up with the 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 Pentateuch and, and the Book of Exodus in particular, well, go to the head of the class. Congratulations. Yes, uh, in the the Book of Exodus, there's an example of a mass exodus. Who knew, right? <laughs> Shocking. Um, and and you know when we look at the you know Israel coming out of Egypt, you know it, it's interesting to ask ourselves a question. Of course, how many people came out of Egypt? Well, in Exodus twelve thirty seven, it gives the number of men who left Egypt as six hundred thousand. And and again, that's just the number of men who uh, who you know left with Israel and and you know the the Israelite men who who left uh, left Egypt and and went out. Uh, during the Exodus, 600,000 men. So that's not including women, and that's not including children. So the actual number of people was much greater than that. Uh, in fact, if, if you look, that, that 600,000 number, it's also given three other times in Scripture. Uh, in Three times in the book of Numbers, it gives uh, the number of men as 600,000, or, or a figure very close to that. So we can be confident that that's an accurately reported number. And I think that's a believable number. I mean, there are some some critics who said, well, it couldn't be that many. Well, I, I think that it actually can be. I mean, when there were 70-some persons came down to, to Egypt from Canaan, you know, with, uh, when uh, Jacob came down to, uh, to stay in Egypt, they numbered, you know, 70-some. You know, and there were about 400 years between the time Jacob came down and the time they left, and their numbers grew considerably. And, I mean, that's one of the things, in fact, you read about that in Exodus, that the, the Hebrew population exploded while they were while they were in Egypt, and in addition, when the Exodus took place, it wasn't just the the uh, the Hebrews that left. There were also some Egyptians that were that were that joined them. Apparently, there were some Egyptians that believed and left. So the number was augmented, not just with with uh, native born Israelites, but also uh, even some Egyptians joined themselves uh, to Israel. So you had this large number of people, and you know. So what was the total number involved in the Exodus? Well, we would just have to estimate. We don't know for sure, but the estimates that I've seen uh, are between two million and three and a half million total. So that's a lot of people. That's a pretty sizable crowd. I think that you would agree that left Egypt. So that's an example of a mass migration, and it's the closest thing we have in Scripture to the kind of migration that's going on right now into the United States and, and into Europe in terms of just sheer numbers. And what I, what I would assert is the, the biblical account that you find in the Pentateuch, in, in Exodus, you know, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that biblical account of Israel's Exodus, wanderings, and eventual move to the Promised Land is a much more appropriate uh, scriptural passage or passages, uh, a much more appropriate application of scripture to our present circumstances of mass migration than is the, the flight to Egypt. So let's take a look here. And one of the, there's a couple of things about the, like I say, about the, uh, uh, the Exodus that, that I think really make a good application in our own time. First of all, it, the scale is correct. You know, so we're dealing with a, a mass migration of people. Second, uh, there are two passages, and I think the second reason is really maybe the reason why Rome doesn't use the Exodus as, as the archetype of, uh, of all migrants everywhere. And that is that the, the account of the Exodus is very specific about how the people were supported. They were supported, of course, by God's grace in the wilderness. I mean, they had the manna. 
So they weren't out there robbing neighbors and, and taking people's stuff. They were, were, were given their, their manna by God himself. Now, also, later on, when Israel was getting close to actually going into the promised land, this is in the book of Numbers, there are a couple of very interesting encounters between Israel and some of the surrounding nations, and I wanted to talk about that. The first one of these took place, this is Numbers chapter 20, uh, verses 14 to 21. And that particular passage records Israel got up to the border of Edom. Now, you may recall that Edom... Uh, the Edomites, they were the descendants of Esau. So essentially, they were, were Israel's brother, basically. Uh, these were a kindred people. And when, uh, when they got to Edom, they, they, they weren't interested in, in con- conquest of Eden, or of Edom. All they wanted to do was pass through. And what Moses did is he sent a, a delegation. I don't know if he sent it to the, the king of, of Edom or maybe to some, some, official, some high officials within the, the government of Edom, but he sent a delegation. And this is what that delegation told the Edomites. And this is a quote. It says, quote, We will not pass through fields of vineyards, nor will we drink water from wells. We will go along the king's highway, we will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory, end quote. So you can see here several things uh, about, uh, about Moses and, and what his, his basic assumptions were. Now, note here he says, we will not pass through the fields of vineyards. We're not going to take your stuff. You know, we're not going to go through your fields and vineyards and, and, and steal your property and, and tear up your fields and tear up your vines. We're not going to do those things. We won't drink your water from the wells. I mean, water, that's a, a very important natural resource, obviously. We're not going to take your stuff. You know, we're not here to take your stuff. We respect your property rights. I mean, Moses is acknowledging the property rights of the Edomites. Unlike the Pope, you know, he didn't think that Edom had an obligation or had a duty uh, to support Israel. You know, he didn't think that Israel had a claim on the property of, of the Edomites. You know, there's a concept in Roman Catholic theology. It's called the universal destination of goods. It's actually, you know, Roman Catholic economics. And John Robbins talks about this in his book, Ecclesiastical Megalomania. And the universal destination of goods is basically says this. I'm just going to summarize it. It's the idea that private property is sort of a man-made legal construct. And, and Rome says, okay, you know, private property is all well and good up to a point. But when push comes to shove, when somebody really needs something, he has a right to take it. So if somebody really needs food or really needs water or really needs clothing or, or something else, and you have surplus food, water, clothing, etc., land or, or other things, well, that person who needs it has a right to take it from you. And if you don't, you know, if, if he doesn't take it from you directly, it's, it's right for the government to take that stuff from you and give it to them. You know, that's, that's the basis of, of Roman Catholics, uh, of, uh, of, the, uh, of the socialism of the Roman Catholic Church. It's this idea called the universal destination of goods. But you can see that Moses doesn't, isn't thinking in those terms at all. He respects the private property of the, the, uh, the people of Edom. He says, we're not going to take your stuff. We're not going to go through your fields. We're not going to go through your vineyards. We're not going to take your grain. We're not going to take your, your grapes. We're not going to try to steal your wine. We're not going to take water from the wells. We're going to stay on a king's highway. We're going to mind our own business. And we just want to pass through. 
Something else here that, that's interesting too is, is, of course, you get this sense from the passage that you know that they weren't going to tarry long in in Edom at all. They just wanted to pass through. Now, you know, you got two million, maybe up to three and a half million people. Now, how long would it take them to go in the King's Highway and pass through Edom? I, I don't know exactly, but I would think that that could probably be accomplished pretty quickly. You know, think about uh, during, the, during the Exodus when Israel passed through the uh, the Red Sea, when, when God parted the Red Sea for them, they went through there pretty quickly. It doesn't give a time frame, but it seemed like they did it, did it pretty fast. I, I don't know. It was almost the same day I think they all went through that uh, that opening in a single day. Now, how long would it take them to go through the King's Highway? I, I don't know exactly, but, you know, maybe a few days at most. You know, they seem like they move pretty fast. And, you know, if you, you, you move quickly and you, uh, you know, you, you do the things that you're supposed to do, yeah, I think that you could probably get to or maybe even up to three and a half million people through Edom pretty quickly. They weren't going to stay there. You know, unlike the, the kind of migration that Rome talks about, Rome is all about first getting people into the United States or into any country. I'm just going to use the United States as an example since I live here. Rome is all about getting people into America and then making darn sure that they never leave. They get them in by hook, by crook, get them in any way they can, and then they fight tooth and nail to make sure that they never leave for any reason whatsoever. That's, that's Rome's model. You know, you think of kind of like a house guest. You know, it's it's great to have company over, maybe have somebody stay in your house a week or two uh, or a day or two. But if you get past what, uh, past three days, that I, I think is usually the uh, the, uh, the customary uh, length of a, of a house guest stay, you know, then it becomes a, then it becomes a problem. You know, so, I mean, it's kind of the difference between, say, having a house guest over for one or two nights or having a house guest over for, say, 10 years, you know. The uh, the model that, that Moses talks about is the house guest that stays there one or two nights. On the other hand, the Pope, he wants to invite the entire world into America and then make sure they never leave. Millions upon millions upon millions of people on top of that, all of which uh, whose freight has to be paid for by the American taxpayer. They have a duty and an obligation to do this, thunders the Pope. Well, just to kind of give you an example of this, of what I talk about, you know, the fact that Rome never once, you know, once in, uh, never leave, you know, this, this idea of the Roman Catholic Church, there's a, a provision in American immigration law, it's called temporary protected status. And what it does is it allows people who, uh, large numbers of people whose country maybe is subject to say like some natural disaster. Uh, this is a common use, uh, common way temporary protected status is invoked. And it, it allows people to stay in the United States indefinitely until the the emergency passes. Well, there are people, there was a, a hurricane that hit, and, and I'm going by memory here, so my, maybe my details may be a little shady, uh, sketchy here. I'm pretty sure I have this right. But there was a, a, I think it was a hurricane that hit Costa Rica way back in the late 1990s. And the Costa Ricans were granted temporary protected status in the United States. Well, guess what? Over 20 years later, they're still here. And during the Trump administration, they, the Trump administration tried to revoke temporary protected status. And the, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops threw a fit. Oh, you can't remove these people. This is unjust, blah, blah, blah. You know, and, and all these, the, they, they have American children and you can't remove these people. And oh, there was all kinds of screaming and carrying on. And I, I don't believe that the temporary protected status was ever lifted. You know, there's this old joke that says there's nothing more permanent than a, a temporary government program. Maybe that's something Ronald Reagan said. I, I don't remember for sure. But yeah, I, I think there's, there's also there's nothing more permanent than a, a temporary migrant. 
Uh, I mean, once in again, you know, the the Church of Rome will move heaven and earth to to make sure that that person never leaves. Now, sometimes they're not successful, but they 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 do everything they can to make sure that nobody is ever deported or nobody is ever kicked out of the United States or nobody is ever sent home for any reason whatsoever. But that wasn't the way Moses did things. I mean, Moses wanted to make quick work of this. He said, hey, we want to pass through your territory on the King's Highway. So, I mean, that would have been probably a uh, an improved large road. Whoosh, we're through, we're through Edom. We're gone. Thank you very much. We appreciate uh, you doing that for us. Uh, and uh, we'll we'll be moving on from here. Now, Edom refused Moses. In fact, they sent out some armed men, and, and they blocked their way. And, and, uh, and, and what, what Numbers says is that uh, Israel, Israel departed. You know, they, they didn't make a big stink about it. You know, Moses didn't seem to think that he had the, the right and the duty to, to, pass, to even so much as pass through Edom, Edom's territory, without first asking, uh, asking uh, the king whether he could do it. And he certainly didn't think he had a right to their property. I mean, you know, think about it. I mean, if, if, if anybody could have thundered about uh, migrant rights, I mean, certainly Moses could have. You know, he could have said, well, you know, we're on a, on a mission from God. You know, God himself said that, that we, we have a right to, to migrate and, and we're, we're going to the promised land and, and you people don't have any right whatsoever to deny us passing through your territory. In fact, we even have a right to take all your stuff. And we might even sit there and camp out for a few months or maybe a few years in your territory. And you can't do anything about it because God said that, that you know, we're, we're God's chosen people and, and we're headed to the promised land and we're going to do what we want to do. I mean, did Moses say that? No, he did not say that. There's not even a hint of that in, his, in, in what Moses said. You know, I mean, it talks in you know, one place in, in the, uh, the Pentateuch, it talks about you know, Moses was the, was the meekest of all men. And, and you really, you, you don't see the kind of attitude, you don't see the kind of ego out of Moses that you see out of, out of the modern-day migrants uh, or the people that support them. Now, what's interesting, you know, I mentioned there were two Bible passages. In the very next chapter of Numbers, uh, Numbers 21, Moses made the exact same offer to Sihon, king of the Amorites. He said, we just want to pass through your territory. Now, what's interesting there in, in the second example is that Sihon actually came out and attacked Israel. Now, Edom sent some, apparently sent some armed soldiers to probably block the Israel from passing through, but Edom did not actively attack Israel. Well, Sihon did, and he ended up getting the worst of it. You know, he went out and, and actually attacked Israel after Israel had, you know, Moses had made this very reasonable, very peaceful request. Uh, Sihon went out and attacked Israel, and, and uh, Sihon probably wished he hadn't done that because the Amorites were defeated, and, and Israel took their land. But that wasn't their original intention. So, you know, here, here we see, again, just to kind of summarize this, the, the scale of the Exodus is correct. And the defense of private property, and also just uh, national sovereignty, if you want to use that term, uh, are, are both evidenced in the, in the way Moses approached uh, asking for permission to pass through territory, uh, the territory of both Edom uh, and the territory of the Amorites. Now, the, both those ideas, private property and uh, independent national sovereignty are both anathema to the popes of Rome. Because, of course, the popes of Rome, the only property that's sacred to the popes of Rome are the, the property of the church. And the only government that has, uh, that has any, any sovereignty in their eyes is the government of the Roman Catholic Church. 
You know, the, the governments of independent nation states have to bow before the Pope. That's what went on during the Middle Ages, and that's what was ended as a result of the Thirty Years' War uh, and the signing of the, uh, the Peace of Westphalia in 1648. Uh, but, the, I mean, the popes still think that they have a right to rule the world. I mean, and the popes and the Roman Catholic Church generally uh, is constantly talking about world government and working to bring that about. You know, they don't want a nation to have the right to say, no, we're not taking in migrants. We're not bringing these people in. Uh, we're not forcing our, our citizens to, to pay the freight, uh, as Victor Orban is doing. Victor Orban is refusing the pope. And, of course, he's getting uh, hammered by the pope constantly over this. You know, and we need to pray for Victor Orban, you know, that his faith remain firm. Victor Orban's a Calvinist. And I mentioned that in my last podcast, and I want to mention that again. Most people don't, rec- don't realize that. So, I mean, in, in that situation in Hungary, you've got a prime minister that actually is interested in defending and standing up for his people against the, uh, the uh, globalist uh, antichrist, Pope Francis. It's quite an extraordinary thing that's going on, and, and we need, as Christians, we need to be aware of that, and, and we, we, we do. We need to pray for, uh, for Viktor Orban. All right, so let's see. I've been going at this for a while. What are we getting up on? Oh, goodness, it's an hour and a half. My goodness, I think it's the longest podcast I've ever done. All right, well, I better be quiet here. I was going to say a little bit more, but I, I think that's enough here for today. And uh, I wanted to present that to you. I, I hope you found that that interesting. If you love liberty, um, I, I think if you love limited government, real, if you love private property uh, and capitalism, really, this whole issue the Bible is entirely on your is, side. Is one of the key completely one hundred percent of our time. And that means when the Pope says this, you must see the face of Jesus in the faces of welfare migrants, when the Pope claims you have an obligation to let them into your country and to fork over your property to support them, you can say to the Pope, "Get thee behind me, Satan." As always, thanks for listening. It was great to have you here today. I look forward to having you back for our next podcast. Until then, may the spirit of truth guide you in all truth as you read and study God's Word.